Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. This week, we're going to settle into the Gilded Age for just a little while longer. There are a few more juicy stories to tell within our New York State of Crime series. And today, I've got a little wrap-up to do from last week's episode, a little bit more about Caroline and Ward and, well, some feuding cousins, which is going to get us to a good place for the remainder of what's coming in this next block of episodes. I do have a little correction from last week. It is the mayor of New York that lives in Gracie Mansion, not the governor. And it is Washington Irving, not the other way around. Oh, week before Walter Winchell. Y'all, sometimes even with the script, I get caught up with excitement and y'all rock your devotion is extraordinary, and I adore your investigator hearts. Let's see if today goes a little better. Because today we've got a few stories that are going to shape up the end of our gilded age in a lot of ways. We've heard maybe of the Cousins War, referred back to the 15th century, but one happened right on the Upper East Side in the 1890s. It's going to include the founding of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Caroline Shermerhorn Astor is heavily involved along with her son and her nephew, Ward McAllister, is going to come into. There's a lot happening in the 1890s that is going to set the stage for how high society will be shaped over the next century. That's the front half of our episode. In the second half of the episode, we're going to get into a little bit more of how that shaped. We're going to continue on with the story of John Jacob Astor IV, Jack Astor, Caroline's son, and oh my, how does the 1890s shake down in the Upper East Side? Let's investigate. So we talked in last week's episode a little bit about Caroline Shermerhorn Astor wanting to be known as the only Mrs. Astor. I mean, the Astors have a lot of family. She's not the only Mrs. Astor. There are two cousins that we're going to talk about in this episode quite a bit. The first is Caroline's son, John Jacob Jack Astor IV. His cousin is William Waldorf Astor. William Waldorf is the son of John Jacob Astor III, and Willie Waldorf is the nephew of Caroline. John Jacob Astor III, William's father, is the first son of William Backhouse Sr. Caroline, as you remember, married the second son of William Backhouse Sr. So John Jacob Astor III and William Backhouse Astor Jr. have the same parents. These are our first cousins, Jack, Caroline's son, William Waldorf, nephew of Caroline. I'm kind of keeping Caroline as the center point here. Now, much to Caroline's dismay, there are a lot of other women who hold the title of Mrs. Astor. And well, Caroline is going to take this new obsession of hers to some extraordinary levels. She'll even take this battle to the United States Post Office. So in 1880, going back a decade, the Astors are going to buy a little seaside cottage called Beechwood in Newport, Rhode Island. Again, we have a whole Newport, Rhode Island saga coming. But at this time, what I need you to know is Caroline tells everyone she knows to send letters to Mrs. Astor Newport. 
but there are three Mrs. Astors in Newport at that time. Two of those, including William Waldorf Astor's mother and his wife. So William Waldorf Astor is competitive, and he's getting a little tired of Aunt Caroline, you know, ruling the roost from her uh, high society pedal. William Waldorf doesn't really love this whole the Mrs. Astor thing, and he's eventually going to pack up after some political losses and head off to England. Sleeve, he's done. Now, keep in mind that his mother and his wife don't care anywhere near as much as William Waldorf Astor does about this whole Mrs. Astor nonsense, but him taking his ball and going across the pond to England is how a branch of the Astor family ends up as English aristocrats. Before he packs up his his ball and goes across the pond, though, William Waldorf Astor is going to play one final trick on his Aunt Caroline. See, his father has passed away in the early 1890s, and now William Waldorf Astor has a ton of money. And he's got some property that belonged to his dad, and he doesn't really want that property. So he is going to tear down the home (laughs) and decide instead to build an elegant hotel and find someone to run that hotel for him while he's in England. So his parents die. Their Fifth Avenue mansion is demolished in order to build William Waldorf Astor's Grand Hotel. Inconveniently, for Caroline at least, William's parents' mansion was next door to Caroline Astor's Fifth Avenue mansion, So by William Waldorf Astor tearing his parents' home down to build a hotel, this hotel is going to be built right next to the Mrs. Astor on her doorstep next door. And uh, for the private and exclusive and very snobbish Caroline, having a hotel next to her home just didn't gonna work for her. And William Waldorf Astor knows it. To add insult to injury, he is going to call his hotel the Waldorf. Construction will begin in 1893. It's going to take about four years to finish. Caroline is still continuing on. She is going to begin building a new home a little further up Fifth Avenue in short order as soon as all this happens. Caroline's going to give one of her last great balls in her current very steady stayed townhome in 1892. This is where I want to catch you up and just add in a little bit of Ward McAllister here. Because by 1892 and Caroline's, you know, big ball of 1892, she and Ward McAllister are on the outs. Because over the 1880s, Ward sort of begins to think he's just as important, if not more important, than Caroline Astor. And well, you don't do that to her. Ward's real overreach is writing a memoir in 1890. And It's a memoir about the 400, and it's certainly one thing to write a memoir, but it is an entirely different thing to publish it, which Ward does. The title of this memoir is called Society as I Have Found It, and well, this is how Ward is going to have society as I left it, because now his reputation is that of a pompous fool, he's a blowhard, and society is really going to begin closing doors on him. After this, the beginning part of the 1890s, Ward's sort of out, and he will die at the Union Club in 1895 after eating dinner there alone 
kind of an outcast in a very insular world, Caroline Astor will not attend Ward McAllister's funeral. In fact, she will not even cancel her dinner plans for that day. Let's get back to the building of the uh, Waldorf Hotel here, because now Caroline's son, John Jacob Jack Astor, is furious. He is really, really angry what his cousin William Waldorf is doing. And Jack is going to threaten to tear down his mother's mansion and build a horse stable next to William's hotel. William doesn't care. Just whatever, do what you're going to do. I'm about to go to England anyway. Also, I hate your mom. The Waldorf Astoria will open in 1897, and it is the hotspot. It's the rage. It's the place to see and be seen. It kind of begins at the Waldorf on February 10th, 1897, at the infamous Bradley Martin Ball. It's one of the first balls that happen at the Waldorf. In the winter of 1897, y'all, New York City is racked by freezing temperatures. People are literally freezing. It is a terrible time. And it is at this time that Cornelia Bradley Martin will decide to give a ball. It is at the Waldorf. It's going to hold way more people. Right now, the biggest ballroom is Caroline Astor's at 400 capacity. The Waldorf shatters all of these illusions of what you can and can't have. Now, Cornelia, her intent of this big, grand, fancy, extravagant ball is to create economic stimulus for New York City. New York has been in an economic depression since about 1873. This does not pertain to the people that are moving to the Upper East Side. Those people are doing fine, but everywhere else in the city, there's a severe economic depression. The Bradley Martins are going to decide to spend right about $10 million in today's dollars for this social triumph of a ball to open the Waldorf Hotel. It is headline news. There are actual matters of national importance happening in the country, but this big party is taking over everything. And the Bradley Martins, presumably, are looking to support the local economy, so they don't send out details about their ball until it is too late to get dresses or goods imported in from Europe. They're looking to stimulate the local economy. Caroline is there. She'll be dressed as Mary Queen of Scots. John Jacob Astor is there as well. He is Henry IV of France. His wife is going as Marie Antoinette. The infamous architect, designer architect, Stanford White is also there. We're going to be coming back to him in short order on Done and Done. For this night in February at the Waldorf, it is transformed into a replica of Versailles. There is a 90-minute receiving line for Cornelia Bradley Martin, an hour and a half just to get through the line to hold everybody, just to get them in the ballroom. The guests are all dressed in period costumes from the 16th, 17th, or 18th century. Please know here that the average income for an American is about $400 a year at this time. Caroline Astor, in that Mary Queen of Scots dress, has $60,000 worth of jewels just on her dress alone, just her dress. As you can imagine, the ball is not very well received by the press or by the public. 
But again, they're fascinated. The public is fascinated by the wealth and the power, much like today. This ball will come at sort of the tail end of the Gilded Age, which will be wrapped up by about 1900. Things are really going to be changing by the turn of the century, but this opening 1897 ball at the Waldorf really is one of the Gilded Age's last huzzas, so to speak. So let's get back to the founding of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, because it's still a little complicated there. Caroline, upon hearing a hotel, is going to be built next to her very posh Fifth Avenue home on 34th Street, is like, yeah, I gotta get out of here. So Caroline is going to build a new home a little bit further up Fifth Avenue. It's going to take up two blocks, 840 and 841 Fifth Avenue. It's actually two homes here. In Caroline Astor's new home, the ballroom can hold about 1,200 people. That ballroom back on 34th Street can only hold, remember, 400. And if you were ever visiting in New York City when you were at the Empire State Building, you can know that you were in Caroline Astor's old home before this new one is built a little further uptown. What's up with the old home? Jack is going to tear down that home on 34th Street and build his own hotel right next to William Waldorf's hotel. Jack is going to call his hotel the Astoria. And to ensure that Jack has the last word over his cousin, he is going to build his Astoria taller than the Waldorf, so the Astoria will cast a shadow upon his cousin's hotel. Nothing like rich people petty. Jack and William never really do mend their personal relationship, but eventually they decide that it would be financially better to join their two hotels instead of having hotels to compete against each other, and thus the Waldorf Astoria Hotel was created. The Waldorf Astoria is possibly the grandest hotel in the world at this time. Even more ironically, it is this hotel that finally knocks Caroline Astor off her society throne. People no longer had to wait to be invited to a ball, to show off their finery, to be seen, to flaunt their nouveau riche wealth. They could just go right down and do it at the Waldorf Astoria. They could make dinner reservations and parade around the lobby. No one's waiting for a hand-delivered invitation anymore to a front door that's never going to come. People can now make their own invitations. In 1905, Caroline will have a stroke, and after this is rarely seen in public. Her servants will find her roaming her mansion, greeting invisible guests. Caroline's death in 1908 is kind of the beginning of the end for this period in New York society. There are women who will come in to substitute for Caroline, but the great center of society is gone. The center that was holding high society together is no longer, and high society is going to go into fractures. It's going to split up. Nothing's being regulated by Caroline's strictly controlled calendar any longer. People have decided just to summer everywhere. You can just have a lot of cash now and get invited to places. You could just make your own dinner reservation. Caroline, for the last God, 60 years, right, has been keeping high society in place, whether it be a good or a bad place. But with Caroline's death, it is a whole new world. 
Gilded Age is about to be out. The progressives are coming. And then it's going to be Cafe Society. we got a few more episodes before we get there. It's a good time now to take a break to hear from our sponsors this week. When we come back, we're going to delve a little bit more into Jack Astor, his wives, his children, a little bit about his death too. Our investigation continues on the other side. So I'm going to use the back half of this episode to talk a little bit more about John Jacob Astor IV, Caroline's son. Jack, as he is known, is the youngest of the five children of Caroline and William. But the thing you need to know is that out of those five kids, the first four are girls and Jack is the only son. And as you can imagine, the child is brought up privileged, good schools, proper introductions, proper people, all that noise. But it is really in the love department that this story gets interesting because eventually Jack is going to need a bride. That bride is Ava Lowell Willing, who was born in Newport, Rhode Island, into a prominent family from Philadelphia. Ava's parents are Edward Shippen Willing and Alice Barton Willing. Ava is a descendant of Edward Shippen, who is the second mayor of Philadelphia. It is February 17, 1891, when Ava will marry Colonel John Jacob Jack Astor IV. Now, I need you to know that Jack's parents are thrilled with this choice because Ava's beautiful and comes from impeccable breeding and bloodlines, but Jack has also had many questionable romantic interests and dalliances. So Caroline and Dad William are pretty happy about all of this. They're going to throw a very lavish wedding. Among the wedding presents for the new couple, Jack and Ava, they get a fully furnished townhouse on Fifth Avenue. Ava will get diamonds from the groom's mother's jewelry case. This is the oddest wedding gift I've ever heard of. Reportedly, there is a 44-gallon drum of semen given to the couple for their happy nuptials. It is unclear what type of semen or for what purposes this would have been used, but given Jack's interest in horses and horse breeding, it can be inferred and hopefully hoped that maybe the 44-gallon drum of semen was prized horse semen meant to bred champions. That's the story I'm going with. Now, prior to his marriage, y'all, Jack had gained a reputation for his bumbling and urgent advances towards women of his social class. He's seen as awkward and arrogant. As a youth, he is part of this highly publicized brawl with another blue-blooded young man whose name is, honestly, Beekman Kip Burrow. Kip and Jack are arguing over which of them should be able to sit next to the beautiful girl that they're both interested in. So this quarrel will culminate in these two young men going after each other with their fists and then their walking sticks before being separated. Regarding this argument, one newspaper commented, It's been a long time since any incident has occasioned so much amusement in society. Jack at this time is given a nickname that sticks with him for most of his life, which is Jack Ass, often written as Jack Ass Tour. The marriage sadly, is miserable from the start, but Ava does her dynastic duty and produces a son immediately. Child's name is William Vincent Astor, 
He was born nine months after the wedding. So once their son Vincent is born, Ava focuses on enjoying herself and taking advantage of the lifestyle that her husband's wealth affords her. Ava loves tennis and bridge and she skis and she's passionate about the new Maison craze. Ava is self-indulgent, sharp-tongued, and extravagant, but unlike her husband, Ava is delightfully spirited. She's down to earth. Ava lacks the typical Aster stuffiness. Ava goes into neighborhood saloons and has a beer. She's way more down to earth than the family she's married into. Because of Ava's love for sports and recreational activities, she convinces Jack to have their good friend, Stanford White, build an athletic complex at Ferncliff. This is the Astor's country estate. This addition will be known as the Ferncliff Casino, and it is known to include the first residential indoor swimming pool within the United States. That pool is made entirely of marble. The Ferncliff Casino also does include indoor tennis courts, a rifle range, a bowling alley, a billiard room, as well as some guest bedrooms. Ferncliff Casino is eventually renamed Astor Courts and is now currently hosting events. Even Chelsea Clinton will use that as the venue for her 2010 wedding. Now, Ava, no lie, appreciates her husband's money. It pays for her extravagances, but beyond that, Ava has very, very little interest in Jack. And she doesn't try to hide it. Ava is often unkind and insults him in front of staff and guests. And Jack, in turn, will spend most of his time away from Ava. But Jack does love his son, Vincent. He adores him. And Vincent adores him back. And Ava, well, doesn't have a whole lot of fondness for motherhood. She will call her son stupid, I know it's terrible. She will avoid Vincent because he's clumsy and he has big feet and he reminds her of his father. Now, Jack is busy yachting and building a real estate empire. And again, he and his cousin are now building the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And Jack is intricately involved in the development of New York City during his lifetime, which doesn't last all that long. But I need you to know that Jack and Ava live separate lives often on different continents. Their marriage is literally in name only. Jack simply can't divorce Ava while his mother, Caroline, is alive. He respects his mom too much. Her standards are far too high. It's never going to fly. And, you know, out of respect and Caroline's feelings about divorce and scandal, Ava and Jack just waiting it out. Now, with all of that being said, it's not surprising there's a great deal of speculation when the couple's second child, a daughter, Ava, who's called Alice, was born in 1902. Speculation is that Ava is not Jack's biological child, and the birth of this new child, oddly enough, does not ease any kind of marital tensions. The couple will continue to live apart, and finally, blessedly, after 17 years of marriage, begin divorce proceedings when Jack's mother... Caroline dies in 1908. Now, this divorce is a society sensation. It is much discussed. It is speculated about because the court is sealing the details of the case. The press is outraged. They think it is proof that the rich has special access to justice and privacy not provided to the normal population. 
<laughs> Welcome to the setup for Done and Done. All right. So as it is the custom of the day and required by law, Jack Astor is accused of adultery and the divorce was decreed in Ava's favor in 1910. Their son, Vincent, is now no longer a minor. He had been raised primarily with his father. Their daughter, Alice, though, was eight years old and custody of Alice is given to Ava, her mother. Ava doesn't do too bad in the divorce. She's going to get an annual allowance of about $50,000. This is $1.4 million a year in today's dollars. She will also get an undisclosed settlement rumored to be 2 to $3 million, looking at 55 to $85 million today. A few days after Ava's divorce is final, she's going to board the Lusitania for London and Goodbye, Jack Astor. Now, after the divorce, Jack is enjoying life. He's yachting. He's spending time with his son, Vincent. He's doing some entertaining with his sister at Caroline's Bellevue Avenue Cottage in Newport called Beechwood. But post-divorce, old Jack is increasingly seen with the recent debutante and graduate of Miss Spence's School for Girls. Her name is Madeline Talmadge Force. When Madeline and Jack fall in love, Jack is 46 years old. Madeline is 17. Just to set this in place, Madeline is a year younger than Vincent Astor, Jack's son. Madeline has been described as pretty, but not beautiful. However, the thing that Madeline has, unlike Ava, Madeline is dazzled and charmed by Jack Astor. With a fortune of $100 million and a brand new ocean-going steam yacht and more hotels and skyscrapers than anyone else, like Jack Astor's quite a catch, on September 9th, 1911, the couple was married at Beechwood in Newport, Rhode Island, and their marriage is not approved of by the upper class at all. They're the talk, they're the scandal of society. They're ostracized. So instead of being snubbed, Jack and Madeline are like, fine, they're going to take off and spend the winter months of 1911 and 1912 traveling in Europe. They get a luxurious houseboat on the Nile and they're having a grand time. On this extended honeymoon, the couple will learn that Madeline is pregnant. So they're going to decide to cut their extended vacation short and come home. And on April 10th, they will travel to Southampton, to board the Titanic for their journey back to New York City. <sighs> when it becomes clear that the Titanic is sinking, John Jacob Astor will usher his pregnant 18-year-old wife into the second-to-last lifeboat. His last words to Madeline were reported to be, The sea is calm. You're in good hands. I'll see you in the morning. Jack will then help passengers into the last lifeboat and went back to the deck to wait for the inevitable. Supposedly, as he watched her lifeboat depart, he leaned against the ship's bar, lit a cigarette, and said, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous. For whatever anyone thought of Jack Astor in his life, his last hours were filled with many fine and heroic actions. He is credited with releasing the dogs from the Titanic kennels and gave up his place on a lifeboat for other people. Many wealthy men were allowed seats on lifeboats before women and children of a lower class, but John Jacob Astor, the fourth, one of the richest men in the world, refused to take a seat 
at the expense of someone else. Jack's body was found floating in its life jacket, with soot encrusting his face and body. This led to the conclusion that instead of drowning, he was actually killed by the toppling of one of the ship's giant smokestacks. Jack will leave the bulk of his estate to his son, Vincent. Vincent will go to Halifax to identify his father's body. One of the effects on Jack at the time of his death is his gold watch, and Vincent will carry that gold watch that his father was wearing when he died with him every day for the rest of his life. Six months after the sinking of the Titanic, Madeline will give birth to a son, who she will name after her late husband. The child will be called Jackie, not Jack, but is also known as the Titanic Baby by the press. Madeline will live in their Fifth Avenue mansion, but four years later, she will marry a former sweetheart. His name is William Dick. And this isn't the smartest financial move for Madeline. In Jack's will, he had stipulated that she would lose her $5 million trust fund, as well as the use of the Fifth Avenue mansion, if she remarried. She remarries, that's gone. Jackie, the baby, the son, will receive a trust fund of $5 million that he will gain control of when he reaches 18. Now, Madeline and William Dick have two sons, but will divorce in 1933, not the happiest marriage. Four months after that divorce, Madeline will marry an Italian actor and boxer. They'll divorce in 1938. Sadly, Madeline will die young at the age of 47 in Palm Beach, Florida from a heart condition. So with the sinking of the Titanic, this makes Vincent Astor one of the wealthiest men in the United States, reportedly inheriting about $87 million. This is close to $2.5 billion in today's money. According to the last Mrs. Astor, Brooke Astor would acknowledge to friends that the sinking of the Titanic had altered the course of her life. Many people believe that if John Jacob Astor IV had reached New York, if Jack had gotten there, he would have rewritten his will to include more for Madeline, as well as to split his enormous fortune between his two sons, Vincent and Jackie, the baby that Madeline's carrying when he dies. As it was, the will stipulated for $5 million to go to his daughter, Alice, $5 million to the unborn baby. They didn't know if it was a son or not when that will was written, and the remaining $87 million to Vincent. Vincent Astor has no children, and due to the mumps, at a young age, he is also sterile. Now, Vincent's third and final wife is Brooke Astor. The Vincent Astor Foundation was created with the purpose of alleviating human misery. So when Vincent dies in 1959, only six years after he and Brooke Astor get married, he'll leave his entire fortune to his third wife, Brooke, as well as the Vincent Astor Foundation. Now, a little fun, little fun thing here. Brooke had been chosen by Minnie Cushing, who is Vincent's second wife, to be the replacement for a wife for Vincent when Minnie Cushing no longer wanted to be married to Vincent. 
See, Vinny was known to have a difficult personality, and after Minnie Cushing tells Vincent that she wants a divorce, he will agree to divorce her only if she finds him a new wife because he doesn't want to die alone. Brooke, at this time, had been divorced once and widowed once and was more than happy to take on the role of Mrs. Astor. Brooke Astor will go on to reign as the philanthropic queen of high society for many, many years. Brooke Astor will outlive her husband by 48 years, dying in 2007 at the age of 105. Brooke Astor's legacy is somewhat clouded by the elder abuse allegations and estate tampering conviction of her only son. And that story, along with so many more, are coming for you on future episodes of Done and Done. We've laid a lot of groundwork in today's episode for a few different spinoffs that are coming. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you tuning in today. We'll be back next Monday with a brand new fresh episode. I appreciate your ears. I appreciate your hearts. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.